Good morning. My name is Jeremy Lobdell. I'm the preaching pastor here. Delighted to be sharing God's word with you this morning. If you're uh, visiting with friends or family in the summertime, we are going through a series of psalms. Not all the psalms, but some selected psalms that the people of our congregation have uh, treasured in their hearts for a long time and requested that we talk about. So we're taking the summer to enjoy this journey of faith together uh, through these beautiful lyrical poems. Today we're going to be in Psalm 73, but before we uh, begin the exposition of that psalm, typically what I do is start with a little story. And today is a bit of a metaphor, so I want you to imagine with me And perhaps you don't even have to imagine. Perhaps this is a very real experience for you. But imagine yourself in a situation where, uh, whether you're going along in life, and um, it could be a comment that you hear or something that you see, but all of a sudden as you're going along, things seem to be traveling relatively smoothly. You're just moving along. Here we go. This is where I'm headed. Things are going okay. And all of a sudden, you notice something. And it's off to the side a little bit, and it seems a little bit out of place, and you're moving at a pretty good pace, so you want to just keep moving along. And yet, you begin to think about it, and you're like, you know what, that's just a little off. I'd rather just keep going along, but I noticed that, and uh, maybe I should check it out. Oh, wait, I really don't want to stop and slow down and check it out. Because if I do and I pull it back, I have no idea what I might find underneath. It'd be a lot easier to ignore that comment and just let it go, but perhaps it's a tip of the iceberg sort of thing. Perhaps something's there. And so you stop whatever you're doing. You go over to that spot or that person or whatever, and you peel it back. All of a sudden, you're just like, oh, man, Uh, this is not what I was hoping for. In fact, it's even worse than I feared. This is a mess. This is a real problem, and it has to be dealt with. And as soon as you start seeing that mess, you're kind of like, oh, man. And the flood of emotions start coming in and whatever it is, the email, the comment, the thing you found, whatever. And you're just like, okay, I feel sick. I feel like I want to cry. I feel scared. I feel upset. I've lost my appetite. I'm not sure whether I want to throw up or what do I want to do here, but this is not right. You feel all these emotions, and at the same time, you're being overwhelmed with this flood. You also, at the same time, your mind is running like a million miles an hour. You're thinking, okay, I can't afford this. I can't fix this. I don't know what to do. This is way, way beyond me. And at that moment, the crisis comes in, and your reality begins to unravel. And you ask yourself the question, when the crisis comes and reality unravels, what do I do? What do I do? 
I can't fix it. I can't afford it. I don't know what to do. This person, this thing, this relationship, this whatever. I don't know what to do. What do you do? Psalm 73 is the answer to that. Psalm chapter 73. So if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn there. We're going to explore what the psalmist does when his reality begins to unravel. What does he do? What do you do? It's the 73rd chapter of the book of Psalms or the 73rd Psalm. Um, We're going to have it up on the screen for you if you want to follow along there. It's also on page 616 if you grabbed one of the blue pew Bibles in back. So however you're following along via electronics or screens or books, uh, follow with me as I read to you the 73rd Psalm. It says this, Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Here's how they prosper. Verse 4, it says, They have no pains until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. And loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues strut through the earth. Therefore... His people turn back to them, and they find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there any knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease they increase in riches. All in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. But... If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then, and only then, did I discern therein. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment and swept away by terrors. Like a dream when one awakens. O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. Looking back now, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Who in the world, whom do I have in heaven but you? And there is nothing else on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you, they will perish. They shall. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near to God. 
I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of your works. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Psalm 73, this, the theme of it is basically this. It's going to be, when reality unravels, worship works. When reality unravels, worship works. The structure of the psalm is pretty simple in the sense, if you try to break it down, it just looks like this. There's a crisis at the beginning. This is something you'll see in a lot of literature. Basically, a book, it begins with a crisis. Boom, there's a problem. Big crisis. Then, some way, midway through, there's a turning point. Something changes, and all of a sudden, things are going to come back around. So, there's a crisis, a turning point, and in the end, there is a resolution. That's what we see in this psalm as well, and that's the way we're going to move through it today. So let's begin with the um, crisis, and the crisis is this. In verse 1, basically the psalmist has this orientation towards life, his original orientation, and that is this. He's operating under the Old Testament law, and in general, in the Old Testament, when they obeyed, they lived according to the covenant, then they were blessed. That was the agreement or the stipulation between them and God. However, as you know, there are things that happen in life that don't exactly go according to our plan. Stuff that we don't understand. Injustice, evil, the prosperity of the wicked. And what happens in this psalm then is the psalmist at some point, we're not told exactly what it is, but there is some crisis that causes his fundamental presupposition to sort of unravel. His idea is that if I obey God, everything will go well for me. All the time. I obey, it goes well. But then he starts to look around, and what does he see? Well, verse 4, he says, hey, I look at the wicked, and (laughs) they're healthy. They have no pains until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They never get sick. The wicked are healthy. What's up with that? I'm righteous and I'm not. I struggle. Verse 5, they're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Hey, look, making a living is hard work, right? It's not easy trying to provide for your family. You think you're getting ahead and all of a sudden something happens and boom, it's, you know, three steps forward, two steps back or vice versa, whatever. You're just not making any progress. This guy's like, look, I look at the wicked And they're always ahead. Nothing bad ever happens to them. What's going on? They seem to be able to live completely above the frustrations of life. How do they do that? They know it too because they go around through life, verse 6, and it says pride is their necklace. They brag about it. Hey man, life is easy. Easy breezy, no trouble here. Everything's good for me. How's it going for you? My life's fine. (laughs) You know, they make issues out of it and they just talk and they talk and they talk and they scoff they set their mouths against the heaven blah 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 blah. we're so good at everything we do everything goes well for us hey buy my new book i'll tell you how to do it too and you go to the conference and you buy the book and if you do and you read it and you do what he says you'll be a success and everything will go well for you because look this guy's a success telling everybody else how they can be a success he makes a lot of money off of success the success you wish you had, you're given to him. And all of a sudden, he's rich. You know? Here they are. They're selling books. And they're telling you this is easy. And if you just do X, Y, Z, all of a sudden, it'll all come together for you. And it'll work. 
The psalmist looks at this and he says, man, what is going on? Lord, come on. They brag about it. Verse 11, they say, how can God know? Is there any knowledge in the Most High? Verse 12, he says, behold, these are the wicked. Those arrogant, boastful fools. Always at ease, they increase in riches. The psalmist is coming undone. He is frustrated and upset. And I got a question for you then. As you hear this, is he right? Silence. It's because you probably want to say, no, he's not. But when you look at your life, you say, yeah, actually he is. Some guy, sometimes the bad guys die, or the bad guys get away and the good guys die. Sometimes the good guys lose. And if we're honest and we look around and we say, yep, yeah, that's the way it is. And what happens is we have a real problem if we're living by what is called comic book theology. Basically the idea that if there is a superpower and a superhero, that all of a sudden he's on your team, everything's going to go well for you, and the bad guys will always win, or bad guys will always lose, the good guys will always win. But then when you broaden your perspective and you look at the rest of life and things are not only or can't be explained in three or four words or a short little sentence, you realize, wow, it doesn't always work that way. The psalmist kind of comes to the end of his rope and he's at he's going downhill fast in this rant. In verse 13, he says, all in vain, I've kept my heart clean. Why did I even do this Christian thing? I don't want to be a Jew anymore. I don't want to follow God. All morning long, I've been stricken and every day rebuked. God, this is just not working. I have tried to live according to your law, and all I see is that the bad guys get away and the good guys lose. What is going on? Have you felt this way before? I had a friend who's a financial advisor in Canada, and he did really well. He moved up the chain, but he got to a point in his career where... Uh, basically, he's being asked to compromise some of his Christian values in order to increase profitability. And he had a brother-in-law in the same firm, and this guy was like vice president over the whole place, and he's doing really well, making gobs of money. And he's saying, look, it's really easy to make money. And my friend was telling me, yeah, it is. It's really easy to make money in this business. I mean, it's just flowing. And if people do not know what they're doing, you can work them over like you wouldn't believe. He's like, you can make so much money off of other folks and their ignorance, it's unreal. And eventually, you know, he's telling me, he's like, I'm looking around at my business and it's a struggle. And just to give you the outcome, he ended up resigning from his current position and moving back actually retroactively into a lower position so he wouldn't be forced to compromise. He's like, man, what do I do? And the psalmist, he looks at his situation and he's saying, hey, What do I do? The bad guys are winning, and that's the only way to get ahead. But, verse 15, if I go that way, if I speak thus, I will have betrayed the generation of your children. I will betray my family. I will betray the loved ones. I will betray the other people of the community of faith. I can't go that route. And so I'm stuck. What do I do? Verse 16, when I thought to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome tax. 
I just don't get it. This is what theologians call the problem of theodicy. The existence of evil while at the same time an almighty, all-powerful, completely sovereign God. In other words, you've probably asked this question before. If there is a God who could prevent it and he is all-powerful, how come he didn't? That was bad. That hurt somebody who didn't have anything to do with that. If God is so good, why? Why? The psalmist is at that point. He's like, hey, what's up? I'm looking around. I see the wicked. They're doing well. I'm not. What is going on? I thought to understand this, and it seemed to me a wearisome task. Verse 17, the next verse, is actually the answer. What's so interesting about this is you can read pages and pages upon this, and indeed some of it's helpful. But in the end, the psalmist is right that this is a wearisome task and there's no way to understand this um, sort of dichotomy, if you will, the existence of an all-powerful, good and loving God while at the same time the existence of evil. Until verse 17 says, here's the answer, here's what happens. Until I went in to the sanctuary of God, then I discerned. Then I was able to figure it out. It wasn't until the psalmist moved out of his emotional, logical, and psychological and philosophical rant, until he came away from that place and set all of that on the side and began to look at God that he was able to understand. It wasn't until he went into the sanctuary It wasn't until he began to worship. In other words, the answer to the question, what do I do because I don't understand this is not right, is to worship. Is to worship. When it doesn't make sense and it doesn't add up and it all seems wrong, the answer is to worship. Now, worship is... Uh, may not seem to you like the answer at that time because you're feeling quite a bit different. You're frustrated. You're upset. You are angry. You are sad. You are sick. You are confused. And so you're like, Pastor, come on, worship? Well, let me show you a few examples from real life that um, are actually things that are counterintuitive that work. I asked this question online this week and I said, hey, what are some examples of things that you do to solve a problem that seems completely counterintuitive to that problem. So think about that in your head for a second. Counterintuitive, but it works. What are some examples? Okay, I'm reading your minds, and here's one I heard. (laughs) Here we go. You ready? Driving on ice. If you live up north, you're probably familiar with this, and you shake your head at all the southerners, but what happens... If you go into a slide, do you turn in, do you try to, like if you're sliding left and you don't want to hit that embankment on the left, what do you do? Crank it right? Oh, you actually turn in to the direction of the slide. Seems counterintuitive, but that's the way you straighten out the vehicle. And then when you regain control, you can turn out. You turn in to the direction of the slide. 
Here's a good one for you. If you've got a weak stomach, cover your ears for a second, because this is kind of gross. An actual nurse told me this. This is real. And then someone else confirmed it. This is what happens in uh, certain burn units. If someone is severely burnt, okay, what happens is, is there's dead skin on the body and there is also new flesh. And the thing about it is, is you want the new flesh, but you don't want the dead skin because that's gangrene. So that could turn to gangrene. So the physicians or the burn unit people may ask. So as I was saying, this is absolutely disgusting. Are you ready? (laughs) They will actually come in and say, hey, would you like to have maggots? Yeah. Do you want to arm load of maggots? Because they're going to come and they will only eat the dead flesh. They won't eat the new stuff, but they'll just chomp away on you. And if you get hungry, you know, you can just be like, (laughs) oh, boy, that is gross, isn't it? And yet it works. I'm told it's phenomenal medicine is to have these maggots eat away the dead flesh. Okay, counterintuitive. All right, let me change it for you who are about to leave and throw up. Um, A golf swing. You wanted the ball to go farther. What do you do? Hit it harder? Chop the ground as hard as you can? Dig some divots? If you're interested, I have some stumps in my backyard that I need removed. Listen, the golf swing is about being smooth and sleek and letting the head of the club do the work and form and, you know, accuracy and all these precision things that I'm not good at. And you do it just right and it goes whooping and just goes and goes and goes straight, not off into the trees or whatever else. So too with fly fishing, I'm told, right? You don't want to just flog the water and hit it super, super, super hard. To make it go further, you actually don't do it harder, but you do it lighter and you smooth it out. Okay, we're going to test. Ready? Test, test. Woohoo! All right, way to go, sound guys. Nice. So there's all kinds of things that you do that are counterintuitive that actually work to solve your problem. Well, so too with worship. The idea is when you're in a bad spot, the very best thing you can do is respond in worship. There's all kinds of biblical examples. For example, you got Paul and Silas. They're beaten and imprisoned. And what do they do? They sing and they pray. The early church is being persecuted. They're in hiding. They're scared for their lives. What do they do? They sing a hymn and go out. You look at David, a man after God's own heart. He's hiding in a cave because the only uh, people he knows who are in power are actually trying to kill him. And what is he doing? He's writing poetry and worshiping and singing his heart out to God. He's a man after God's own heart. Why? Because he's a worshiper. Worship works. It completely and totally works. It changes everything about you. When you're in this dark spot, the way to respond is through worship. Now, let me give you another example while I'm pulling out examples. This is July, and so I thought you could use some Christmas cheer. How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Here's an excellent example of how to respond in difficult times. I'm not going to read the whole book to you, but let me... Yeah, I'm sorry, I know. Let me read just a couple pages to give you an idea of what's happening. You probably know this story by Dr. Seuss. It says this. Every Who down in Whoville liked Christmas a lot. 
But the Grinch, who lived just north of Whoville, did not. The Grinch hated Christmas the whole Christmas season. Now, please don't ask why. No one quite knows the reason. But I think the most likely reason of all may have been that his heart was two sizes too small. Then you know what happens after that. The Grinch is so grumpy with all these Who's that are enjoying this season. He goes down into town and he tries to clear out all the presents, all the gifts, all the trimmings, all the trappings, even the giant roast beast. The Who takes all of these away, or the Grinch takes all of these away from the little Who's and he puts them in his sleigh and he goes to the top of the mountain to see if he could throw him off the edge of the cliff and ruin Christmas for everybody. But at the top of the cliff, he stops for a moment because he's thinking this. Now, 3,000 feet up, up the side of Mount Crumpet, he rode with his load to the tip top to dump it. Their mouths will hang open a minute or two, then the Who's down in Whoville will all cry boo-hoo. <laughs> and then he listens. That's a noise, grinned the Grinch, that I simply must hear. So he paused, and the Grinch put his hand to his ear. And he did hear a sound rising over the snow. It started in low, and it started to go. But the sound wasn't sad. Why, the sound was merry. It couldn't be so. But it was very merry. Every who down in Whoville, the tall and the small, was singing without any presence at all. This is exactly the response we're going for. Completely what the Grinch did not want. And I can assure you, completely what the enemy does not want as well. He wants to steal your joy. He wants to ruin your life and make you miserable and cause you to question everything you believe. He wants you to enter that downward negative spiral to the point where you cannot pull out. And there is only one way to do so. And the psalmist and the Bible and the rest of the examples we have, even the Grinch himself, even the story of this, makes it very clear. What do you do when stuff doesn't work? You worship. You worship. You worship not because the circumstance is good, but because God is good. That is the thing with worship. Worship is this. Here's the definition. Worship is the willful submission to God. You just say, okay, that's it. Your way, not mine. I have no idea what's going on here, but here it is. The willful submission to God for a couple things. Number one, for who he is, just because he is who he is. And number two, for what he's done, what he's done on the cross. You submit to God. You just say, your way, not mine. I have no idea what's going on here. It's a mess. I don't get it. But I submit. I will worship you because you are good no matter what. Every time I try to understand, like the psalmist says, for me, it's a wearisome task. And I don't get it. But when I enter into the sanctuary, then I was able to discern. At that point, things changed. All of a sudden, my perspective looked up, my eyes grasped you, your glory, and your beauty, and all of a sudden, everything else fell into place. 
When we come to worship every week, church, this is so important. That's why we start our services every week with music. It's not a crowd control device. You know, it's not just to give you an opportunity to come in late because I know it's Sunday morning and, you know, the eggs burnt and the toast fell down and yada, yada. It was hard getting to church. I get it. And if you're late once or twice, fine. No big deal. That's why we save the seats for you and back. But look, the worship (laughs) is a big deal. It is important. It is what prepares our hearts and sets things in perspective. And all of a sudden, when everything else is going wrong, you can put that other stuff to the side and you can look up and focus on God and you get it right. This is what causes you to change. It's not a perfunctory thing that we do at the beginning of our service, but instead is an essential part of your Christian experience. It is a shot in the arm that you need every single week. It is what strengthens and restores you. It gives you hope. It gives you joy no matter what you're going through. It is our response. It is our release. And it is our repose. It is our response to a gracious and loving God. It is our release from a cruel and wicked world. It is our repose to anything bad that happens to demonstrate God's victory over it. This is worship. It is a willful submission to who God is and what He has done. It's an essential part of your Christian life. This is what you see playing out in the Psalms. So you look at that crisis, turning point, resolution again. And you see it through those lens. You see the crisis being basically, hey, when I thought to understand this, verse 16, I didn't get it. It's a problem. It's a crisis. I'm about to abandon my faith. What do I do? I don't believe. It's not working. God, where are you? Then he goes into worship. And there's a change, a turning point. Something happens. Then I discern their end. What will happen to the wicked? Well, God makes it very clear in his word. I may not see it now, but in the end it will happen. And then there's the resolution. And the resolution then, it provides him a whole new perspective on three different things. Number one, on the wicked. That's what he was struggling with. Number two, on himself. And number three, on God. So a new perspective gives him a perspective on everything, on other people, on himself, and on God. And this is what he does with the wicked in verse 18. He begins to realize after he is worshipped, after he's taken his eyes off their success and his struggles, he realizes, Lord, truly you set them in slippery places. They are on thin ice. They think they're doing well, but very quickly that's going to crack and fall out from under them. You will make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed, verse 19, in a moment. Swept away utterly by tears. Like a dream when one awakes, you rouse yourself, Lord, and you make them disappear like phantoms. Boom! They're gone. This is what will happen to the wicked. Right now they seem so prosperous, so successful, and it is the message you are hearing everywhere very clear. But all of a sudden, when Christ returns, it's done. Boom! They're gone. What about me? What about me, Lord? Verse 21 says, When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant towards you, like a beast. You know, when I was going downhill, 
I was going downhill fast. Yet even though I thought I was thinking, I didn't know what I was thinking. I thought I was so erudite and philosophical and contemplating the problem of theodicy, yet it was driving me further and further away from you. Nevertheless, you were with me that whole time. Verse 23. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. That's where real wisdom is. And eventually you will receive me into glory. That's me. And Lord God, then when I think about them and I think about me, ultimately my heart is turned to you in verse 25. And I realize very clearly, wow, what else is there? What else is there? When reality unravels, who do I have realistically? Only you. You can take my job. You can take my health. You can take relationships. You can take my life, but you cannot take my God. I have nothing else in heaven but for you. There's nothing else I desire but for you. My heart, my flesh, my health, they fail. But God is the strength of my portion forever. He does it. For behold, this is, this is the sum total. For those who are far from you will perish, and you will put an end to anyone who is unfaithful. But for me, this is what I realize, the best place to be, the right spot, is near to God. Only here do I find my refuge. Only here do I find my repose, my release, and my response. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of your works. When reality unravels, the answer is to worship. To worship. Whom whom in heaven do I have but you, God? There is no one else. There is no one else at all tell you the rest of the story in the Grinch book. It's kind of interesting. What happens is this, is, you know, he hears the singing, and all of a sudden he's stuck. He's kind of like the psalmist, too. He's like, what in the world is going on? I don't get it. I took away all their stuff. I took away all their presents. Shouldn't I have just stolen their joy? This is how Dr. Seuss summarizes it. He says, and the Grinch, with his Grinch feet, ice cold in the snow, stood puzzling and puzzling. How could it be so? It came without ribbons. It came without tags. It came without packages, boxes, or bags. And then the Grinch thought of something he hadn't thought of before. Maybe Christmas, he thought, doesn't come from a store. Perhaps Christmas means a bit more. Then what happened? Well, everyone has their own ideas. But basically, what happened is this, is as a result, well, what happened then, they say in Whoville, the Grinch's small heart grew three sizes that day. It's a heart issue. And all through this psalm, as you follow along, what you'll realize is that word heart occurs like six or seven times. It's an internal issue between you and God, and therefore the only way to solve it is through worship, is through worship. It's not through your circumstances changing, your health getting better, your finances improving, all of a sudden the evil uh, being done away with or whatever. In the end, that will happen. But for now, the answer, the solution, is worship. Is worship. It seems counterintuitive, but it's the right way to go. I've got one more slide here of something that is counterintuitive that I want to show you, and this is kind of the direction I'm trying to send you for today. And that's this. It's the picture of a rip current. 
And if you're out at the beach this summer, you go to one of the oceans, what can happen is uh, the water and the tide sort of counteract each other. Or, well, the water is tide, but I think you know what I mean. Uh, And as a result, people get swept out to sea. And the natural tendency is when this thing is pulling you out to sea is to swim against it. You want to struggle, you want to fight, you want to get back to the shore. So you try to swim right up the center of that current. But if you do that, that current is going to be too strong for you. You're going to hit the, the beach and the barriers or whatever is underneath, and you're just going to roll and roll and roll, and you're going to struggle and struggle and struggle until eventually you drown and die. And the only way to get out of that trouble is to swim out, let it push you out a little bit, and then you swim out to the side. And then you come back around and you're safe. But you have to let the current sweep you a little bit and actually go with it before you can escape. What I'm saying to you this morning in a similar way is that that's what happens in our struggles. So often we see these bad things coming and we just want to fight against it. Say, come on, come on, come on, God, what are you doing? This is wrong. I resist, I resist, I resist. I Eventually you have to come to the point where you say, whoa, this is a wearisome task. And I'm getting nowhere. And I've got to stop. And instead of trying to fight against the current, I've got to flow with it. And I say, Lord, I willingly submit myself to you. Whatever you're doing here, I don't get it. I don't understand. But I submit to who you are and what you've done. And as a result, I am going to worship you through it. And when you do that, things change. Things change. I'll conclude like this. Verse 22 and 23 says it like this. You've probably been there. It says, I was brutish. I was ignorant. I was like a beast. Nevertheless... You are continually with me, or I am continually with you, because you hold my hand. You hold my hand. I know for guys, this is something that we're kind of like, what? Hold my hand. I don't need anybody to hold my hand. I think I'm good, (laughs) right? We're not going to sing Kumbaya or anything, right? Stay back. I'm good. Right? No hand holding, you know? And, you know, for other people, they may be like, woohoo, that's old hands. <laughs> but this is not an effeminate issue here. I think I've tried to demonstrate that before. Talk about rock climbing or other things. There are points in time where you are too weak and you need someone else to come along and, boom, grab your hand and pull you up. Now, you can make this metaphorical if you want, if it's a little too touchy-feely or whatever, and you can say, hey, look, God, chop down a tree in my front yard. I don't want it to drop on the roof. I need somebody else to come along and help me and pull and push while I try to direct and whatever. Okay, that guy's helping me. He's holding my hand in a sense, if you will. He's making sure I don't mess things up or make a big mistake that's going to hurt me or hurt someone else. He's come alongside to strengthen me. And that is the idea here in the psalm. He's like, look, you're going to struggle, you're going to struggle, you're going to struggle. Until you submit to God and say, your will, not mine. You go with the flow. You you swim along. You submit. And you come to the side. And then you worship. And you begin to come out. And then you look back over your shoulder. And you realize that whole time, God is with you. And he is holding your hand. This is why one of my favorite songs is from Hootie and the Blowfish. In, In high school, I was in a physics class, I think. I can't remember much of the physics, but I remember being up late one night trying to figure out homework I couldn't figure out. And then on the late show, 
on David Letterman, on comes this new group, and it's called Hootie and the Blowfish. And you're like, what in the world? Hootie and the who? The guy's name's actually Darius Rucker. It's not Hootie. And they had this beautiful new song. With, he sang it with a very soulful voice, and it was just like, wow. Once I heard that, next day I'm at school, I'm like, you guys got to hear this. This is amazing. And the idea is this, you know, holding my hand is this concept, I would say, that is much bigger than us. Because all of us, as we go through life, whether we admit it or not, we need someone to hold our hand. We need someone to come along and comfort us. We need someone to come along beside us. Life is difficult, and there are big jumps that we just can't get up ourselves. We need that help. We're weak, and we want someone to hold our hand. And the world's going to tell us that you can, you know, figure this out through some romantic relationship or some magical moment or mystical thing or power aid or power drink or whatever. And in the end, that's a short, short burst that's not going to get you there. You need the almighty, supernatural, sovereign hand of God to hold your hand. That's the one you want to hold. And that's the one that will help. So when you come to these difficult spots and you're, you're at your wit's end and you're like, man, what do I do? What do I do? My response is to reach out your hand. Grab a hold of God's and know that he is right there with you. And when you start looking up at him and you begin to worship, then everything else begins to fall in place. Doesn't mean that he'll fix it in this life right now, but it means that he will walk you through it, whatever it is, holding your hand. So I pray for that for you, church, and I hope you're encouraged. I know it's a little bit somewhat of a downer when you look at this thing, and I, had, I felt like I had to bring you through those to show you how to come out. And it seems counterintuitive, but in the end, that's the solution. If you're feeling bad this week, if you're in a tough spot, my advice is not go get the bottle, not go get the whatever that makes you feel better, but instead go to worship. Whatever you got to do, whether you write poetry, whether you read the Bible, whether you listen to music, whether you get along, get quiet, get with your friends, whatever it is that's your spiritual pathway, you get there and you get there fast. And that's what will bring you out. Worship works. It seems counterintuitive, but it's the very thing that you need to do. When you're struggling, when it doesn't add up, when life doesn't make sense, the answer is to worship. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your goodness and grace. And Lord, uh, sometimes we just don't know what to do. And we admit that like the Grinch, often our heart is just too small. And we need you to work a change. And we fight and we struggle and we resist. But in the end, the answer is just to lay all that down beside and front and before you and worship. And God, I pray that we would. Because it's hard, Lord. Uh, The circumstances are difficult. The problems are big. Relationships are complex. Careers are on the line. And here we are. And we don't know what to do. Lord, please come through. Hold our hand. Hold on tight. Hold on strong. Give us the courage and strength to look up at you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.